It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. News Podcast presents Brett Baer's All-Star Panel. America's got to be in the lead if you want to deal with these threats. We're going to lead. The morning is over. The shiva is done. And if you're a conservative, you should be optimistic. You know, my main priority right now is making sure that it delivers for the American people. We have to make our country great again, and I will do that. I think the president gets criticized by people all the time for the stuff he says, by people who ignore what he does. Now, Fox's chief political anchor, Brett Baer. The war in Israel has resumed with Israeli forces pushing their ground offensive into Khan Yunus, with Iranian proxies continuing to attack American targets throughout the region. More than 76 times U.S. troops under attack in the Middle East. The presence of three prominent colleges on Capitol Hill facing scrutiny from lawmakers over their response to rising anti-Semitism on campus since the October 7th terror attack on Israel. We embrace a commitment to free expression and give a wide berth to free expression, even of views that are objectionable. You and I both know that's not the case. You were aware that Harvard ranked dead last when it came to free speech. Are you not aware of that report? As I observed earlier, I reject that characterization. It's the data shows it's true. And with less than six weeks until the Iowa caucuses, the Republican field is narrowing slightly with North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum announcing he's dropping out of the race. But candidates like former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis still struggling to gain ground on the front runner, former President Donald Trump. For a conversation on this and more, we bring in our panel. Fox News senior political analyst Juan Williams, former chief speechwriter for President George W. Bush and member of the Wall Street Journal editorial board Bill McGurn, and Fox News audio Washington correspondent Jared Halpern. Jared, up on Capitol Hill today, uh, it was a little fiery between lawmakers and the presidents of of colleges dealing with anti-Semitism and, and arguably at the beginning not dealing with it well. I think it's a challenge for academic uh, environments to kind of figure out the right balance. Certainly you want colleges and universities to be spaces of free exchange of ideas. You heard uh, that the presidents of these universities talk about even objectionable speech needs to be allowed in these environments. But certainly there is a point in which you have other students, in this case Jewish students, who feel threatened, who feel like this is not a place that is conducive to learning. And certainly that was a challenge that you heard these uh, these presidents describe. I'll be curious to see what the next steps are. If Congress believes that they have a role here in maybe clamping down on this, certainly when you look at federal funding, that is often um, the kind of uh, stick that, that Congress, that, that administrations can kind of level uh, on these campuses. And, and you've seen uh, certainly calls for that as well. Um, and you've seen the administration kind of deal with this, talking about how, um, you know, you can't have threats and, and students feel uncomfortable. Um, certainly you can't have violence and vandalism, as we have seen in parts of Washington and outside the White House. But at the same time, uh, the, the administration says that they don't want to block um, free speech. They don't want to block the ability for people to, you know, object to, to foreign policy decisions made by 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 this administration. 
it is a line, clearly, Bill, and you've got to walk down it if you're in administration and you have the podium. Uh, but the level of anti-Semitism that we've seen on college campuses and across the United States, I think has, even weeks later, still surpri- surprised some people. Yeah, I think you're right. I also think in 95% of these cases, it's not a hard line to draw. There's plenty of speech on campus. No one's stopping these kids and professors from saying what they want to say. What, what What's troubling is the menacing of Jewish students, the students who are holed up in the Cooper Union Library with a mob chanting outside, the Jewish kid who is harassed at Harvard, um, and, and also the general uh, way some of these demonstrators seem to want to inconvenience others. It's an odd way to try to get sympathy, uh, and not just on the campuses, when they block traffic or close a bridge down. Um, that's not speech. That's interfering with other people's lives. And I, I think the colleges have not done enough to make that clear. I, I wrote a column on this uh, peg to Harvard last week, but it could apply to a lot of places. And I recalled the example from Notre Dame in this in during the um, 60s when the protesters came. One of the things they first did was have a like a die-in where they would lie around the doorways to the end to where um, CIA and Dow Chemical recruiters were waiting to interview students. So that meant that any student that wanted to go to an interview had to walk on top of the bodies of his fellow students. Father Hesper was a dove in Vietnam, uh, uh, a liberal, but he was appalled at the way they treated their fellow students. So he he issued a famous letter reprinted in the New York Times saying kids that tried to substitute force, even nonviolent force, for a reason, would have 15 minutes to ponder their actions, and if they persisted, their IDs would be collected, and they would be suspended or expelled, and he followed up. And that'll do it, you know, if you're an administrator. Juan, there is still, obviously, a serious concern about civilian casualties as those numbers continue to rise. Whether you look at the Red Crescent numbers, you don't take Hamas at, at their numbers, but you know you can see it with your own eyes and some of the reporting that is on the ground in Gaza, that it's in the thousands, above 10,000, we believe. Uh, and those are civilian casualties that the Israelis say uh, are at the hands of Hamas uh, because they're human shields often in attacks against Hamas leadership. And obviously, they are holding on to hostages still. That said, there's concern. And you wonder how much time Israeli forces have to get this operation to a successful point. You know, you don't know what the expiration is on the world uh, looking into this. You know, what's interesting here, Brad, is I think there's pressure inside Israel from families of people still held hostage on Netanyahu, the prime minister, to say, talk to Hamas, get those hostages home. And that's one level of pressure. And then there's the global pressure that is attached to the images of the destruction of Gaza. I think everyone understands that Hamas provoked this situation, that Hamas hides behind civilians in hospitals and schools. But at some point, there's this sense of revulsion that, well, there's this powerful military, the Israeli Defense Force, that is 
having free reign to simply go after uh, everybody, including civilians, in, in as they try to destroy the Hamas military structure, which is a legitimate, I think in most people's minds, a legitimate objective. But the question is about the death toll, as you just recounted. You know, I mean, to me, there is an ongoing conversation here that has to do with, you know, exactly how you maintain moral authority in the midst of a war. This week here in this country, lots of discussion about the reluctance of some progressive groups to discuss Hamas raping Israeli women uh, as a matter of war. And then, of course, on the other side, you have people who are reluctant to deal with the high number of fatalities. And it looks like, you know, Gaza has just been leveled by the power of the Israeli military. You know, even on that, we were discussing the college campuses. You have lots of discussion about the Jewish students feeling intimidated. We also have three Palestinian students who were shot, shot. Uh, you know, and we're not sure it was a hate crime, but these things have happened. And you see this kind of hatred spreading. I think that's uh, uh, one of the things that's driving the fact that, you know, 50% of Americans support Israel and what it's doing to go after Hamas. But it's like 45%, according to Gallup, who say, you know what, let's bring this to an end. Let's stop this. They're not supportive of this war effort any longer. And I think as Israel continues its efforts, you're going to see that opposition number rise because it's just hard to maintain that moral authority when you're so far a superior force. Panel, we'll hold it right there. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at BrianKilmeadeShow.com. Turning to domestic policy, politics, Jared, six weeks until the Iowa caucuses. Um, currently, the former president leads, depending on the poll, 20, 30 points, um, similar in New Hampshire. If you look nationally, it's at 40 or 50 points, uh, his lead. As you go into this time where, you know, we'll get into the holidays and then right after New Year's, it is a full court sprint. Uh, to the Iowa caucuses, January 15th. Can something dramatically change in that period of time to change the dynamic? Boy, it's hard to see a scenario where it does. And I think you make a good point about the calendar, Brett, that the Iowa caucuses are a little bit earlier this year even than they have been. I think in years past, weren't we always up there like on Super Bowl Sunday? <laughs> the, the caucuses were the day after the Super Bowl. Yeah, and, there were a couple and, of crazy ones where they right, had to move early it back. February. Uh, so... Yeah. Uh, my point is it's that that makes it even harder right if you're trying to to surge up from behind to you know get those ads on TV get your profile up visit all 99 counties I know Ron DeSantis has been able to do that I will be interested to see if these major endorsements um, mean it much right you have the governor endorsing uh, Ron DeSantis you had the the Vanderplatz endorsement of DeSantis generally the governor and, and Vanderplatz the, the family leader are significant endorsements for a Republican uh, presidential candidate but you know Iowa has surprised us an awful lot um, in years past but it is hard six weeks out to see a, a scenario where a candidate's able to make up 15 20 30 points yeah and Bill 
in this environment where the former president is leading exponentially in in these polls, you have now seen this spate of articles and columns, even the entire Atlantic magazine focused on what a second Trump administration would look like with the overall premise being that Donald Trump will turn into a dictator and that he will not leave office and that he will use uh, the Department of Justice to uh, go after his opponents and he will do X number of things. You know, the Atlantic, you just turn the page and there's another opinion piece about, you know, what could potentially happen. But it almost seems like it's, you know, someone threw a switch and said, OK, everybody write this story because it was in The Washington Post with Fred Kagan. It was in The New York Times. As I mentioned, Atlantic. There are other pieces. What do you what do you think about this? Obviously, the former president has said some things on the trail that would raise eyebrows any time if any other person said it. However, he says all kinds of things. Um, and all we have really is to look back to the first term to see what he did. Yeah, I think the uh, the idea that Donald Trump wouldn't leave office is kind of ridiculous. Um, one of the things we learned about the first term is a lot of times when he posed crazy things, people in his own administration fought him. You know, that was certainly not the case when um, the Democrats were in control and the FBI and stuff were intervening in elections uh, with their actions. So I don't think that so much is a problem. Right now, I mean, I've always thought Donald Trump wouldn't be on the ticket in the end. Uh, that's getting harder and harder to sustain. What's clear now, he's still liable. There's so many things in court cases. There's so many little explosions along the road that could derail him. It doesn't look like it's going to come from his Republican challengers. Um, I, I think unless, unless they come in both New Hampshire and uh, Iowa, unless uh, uh, someone beats him, not comes in a strong second or a brave third. Someone has to really excite the people by showing Donald Trump can be beaten. I, I think he'll be the nominee. And uh, I don't know. You know, Nick in, in New Hampshire, Nikki Haley has a better chance in Iowa, uh, Ron DeSantis. But even now, no one's really talking about their winning. And I don't see how you topple Trump if you're not going to win. Yeah. Well, and back to these pieces, um, I, I think they do miss the strength of our republic. I mean, you have to, if you're going to go down that road, you have to say that the Supreme Court uh, is going to just put up with this or roll over, which we have seen numerous times in numerous rulings. They've gone against something that the Trump administration or uh, Donald Trump has wanted to do. You'd have to say that Congress would have to roll over. And we've seen that not happen. You'd have to say that the military would suddenly say, OK, let's go with the leader and and go into different Democratic states in one, you know, uh, going totally against posse comitatus and everything else. You You have to suspend reality about our republic, don't you, to get to Donald Trump, the dictator? I don't think so. I mean, you know, it's interesting in reading these pieces because as I'm reading them, I'm thinking to myself, I can imagine that Trump supporters dismiss this as alarmist. 
and make just the case you did, that we've lived through four years of Donald Trump as president, and he did not become a dictator, in large part because of the kind of moderating forces from the rest of government that you've just spoken about. Now, in the pieces that have occurred now, and again, I think a large part of the trigger here is that it's pretty clear now that despite the criticism coming from the establishment Republicans, the people who have been backing not only DeSantis, but Nikki Haley, um, the Chris Christie's of this world, it's clear now that it's likely it's going to be either Donald Trump or the Democrat likely to be Joe Biden. And so it's, you know, he's got to, if you just were throwing the dice, he'd say a 50-50 chance. People are like, oh my God, what would it mean to have a second Trump administration? Well, you stop and think, and the, the contents of these articles, they point out, for example, of course, there's a conservative majority on the court. He's talked about making the Justice Department into his agency to go after this, what he called vermin, you know, people who are his critics. He's talked about in terms of the military, uh, things like, you know, accusing General Mark Miley, uh, the former Millie. chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, of the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff of treason. He said the press, imagine if Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama had said, oh, I don't like conservative media. I'm going to use the power of government to scrutinize that conservative media, I think everybody would have a moment of, whoa, so that guy I, is one of two choices? I mean, I get it. I get it. But, you know, Trump supporters or Republicans who are Trump uh, friendly or Trump curious would say, well, sometimes the Democratic administrations have done those things. They've spied on reporters. They've done things that have been outside the bounds of, of uh, you know, what the Constitution perhaps says, and they never got called on it. You know, I think that there is some pushback there. And what he says, Juan, uh, is one thing. He's also said, you know, that he was in favor of the people who weren't captured for John McCain. That did, that didn't happen. It didn't affect his uh, time in in uh, as a candidate in 2016. He's he's said a lot. I just question whether this means, Jared, that he's going to really go to this level and change the dynamic and no one will step up. I understand that you would have different people inside the administration. You may not have a John Kelly or a Bill Barr or a Jim Mattis or, you know, some of the people who obviously stopped some of those things from happening. Uh, well, the I question think, I think is whether. Yeah, yeah go ahead. Well, I think that that is the concern. I mean, that that seems to be when you talk to to a lot of Democrats and even some Republicans who were concerned about what a second uh, Trump uh, president, uh, second Trump presidency would look like is they point to to the figures who you just listed as kind of being those moderating influences who kind of were able to, to ratchet down whatever impulse maybe uh, the president or, or those close to him had. So in the absence of those figures, I think is why a, a lot of those questions are raised. Bill, you know, just uh, we're getting word that President Biden to donors in Boston said, if Trump wasn't running, I'm not sure I'd be running. He said, Democrats cannot let him win. It's quite a statement. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I, I think um, it's the strongest card. Look, Bidenomics is not working. The um, 
foreign policy is dividing his policy over um, Israel and uh, the border is not working. Um, his strongest card was always that not only that I'm not Trump, but I defeated Trump before. So I'm not surprised rather than touting his administration's successes as he believes them to be. He's making the case all about Trump. And is that effective one? I think it's his best shot. I'm kind of repeating Bill's line here because I think that the criticism from not only the progressives, the far left in the Democratic Party, Brett, but I think from liberals and even moderates says, well, why is it that you have been so reluctant to talk about Trump? Why don't you go and say that you think he's an extremist? Why don't you say it? And uh, for the longest time, the, the, the logic inside the White House was we don't talk about Trump. We don't bring him up and we're not going to engage him. Um, and I think that has shifted. And now, given the report that you just shared with us, I think he's being very clear that he is the thin blue or red or whatever color line you want between another four years of Trump and the risk that we mentioned all these writers are bringing up about, you know, possible authoritarian regime uh, and the future of America, that he is making himself out to be the guardian at the gate. And I hear you on all those concerns. I hear you about the filter not being there for the block of some of the moderates who moderate some of the policy suggestions. I hear you about, you know, what he says and the raised eyebrows. I just wonder politically, Jared, if people who are even independents look at the Biden administration and look at President Biden and his concerns about his age and then look at the Trump administration and what happened to them at their kitchen table and what happened to them around the world as they looked around the world and just compare the two and say they're blowing this out of proportion. Yeah, listen, I think uh, this is a unique election. I, have we had a, a election? Quite, I certainly can't remember one where you have essentially two incumbents running against each other, right? And so we are going to have, if it is Trump versus Biden, a couple of four years of records to look at and judge and, and voters are going to get to make that determination. And I think that's um, a unique um, experience for most voters. It, it's not an election necessarily about what am I going to do. It, it is an election from two candidates who are going to be able to say what they did do and in which they will be judged by what they did. I do. Uh, I, I will be curious as the campaign moves on, as we kind of talk about how much um, is uh, President Trump going to talk about former pre how much is President Biden going to talk about former President Trump? How much does former President Trump talk about um, President Biden and how much of his campaign is kind of about 2020, about uh, all of the, the, the unfairness that he sees in, in the judicial process or how much of that is really saying, how much were you paying for gas during my four years and how much are you paying for gas now and how much are you paying for this and how much are you paying for that and, and comparing that with uh, with his time in office? Be fascinated to see a lot to cover here as we tick down towards the first vote six weeks away. Now for a bit of history, December 5th, 1848, President James K. Polk, in his fourth annual address to Congress, announced that gold and other precious minerals were discovered in New Mexico and California. In these comments, a gold rush was sparked with nearly 300,000 prospectors traveling to the region in the hopes of striking it rich. With the massive population and economic growth, California was propelled to statehood, becoming the 31st state on September 9, 1850. Today, you won't find many prospectors in the region, but the San Francisco 49ers 
pay homage in their name to those hopeful Americans who made the journey to California in 1849. That'll do it for this week. You can hear more of this series at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Make sure to leave a rating and a review. We want to hear from you. For Juan, Bill, and Jared, I'm Brett Baer. We'll see you next time. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.